you got to go big, <laughs> go strong, go everything you've got. And I think, how long can I give everything I've got to that thing? Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. This is the show that's fuel for all your efforts to make progress in your life. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and today, Tom Ziegler and I bring you Greg McEwen, best-selling author of the book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. You know, the term bestseller is used a lot. So let me clarify that this is the real deal. This book was published just three and a half years ago. Today, as of this writing, it is ranked 1,289 in bestselling books in Amazon overall. That's a big, big deal. Uh, now, having studied the book, I know why. It is a game changer, a life changer in reality. As you'll hear in this interview, it's not about minimalism. It's more about making the right and best decisions, putting decisions to extreme tests, being in control. Uh, a great analogy really that sets a stage for this. Greg says that in an emergency, everyone is an essentialist. We get on task on target, divest ourselves of non-necessities and do what is most efficient, effective, and successful. So can we do that in all the areas of our life in most of the moments of our lives? Can we live like that? Well, listen in and find out. You can connect with Greg and his revolutionary work at Greg McEwen.com. That last name is spelled M C K E O W N. When you get value from the show, please let us know by leaving a review in iTunes. The best way to say thank you is just that. Well, here then Tom Ziegler and I bring you Greg McEwen. Okay, Greg, so with your devotion to essentialism and only doing what you deem to be essential and discerning the right activities to invest your time into, I'm even more honored than usual that you have given us status as essential in your life today. Thanks for being here. It's so nice to, have, to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean that uh, for real. We talk with such high-level folks like you have busy lives, so taking time out for us uh, is a big deal. I want to dive in right at the, uh, at the top and talk about being busy. I mean, we as a culture generally know or think of ourselves as, as busier than we should be. I, I hope most people think that, but what's at the core? I mean, I, I've got, I've got nine kids. I've got multiple businesses. I claim busyness sometimes, even though I, I kind of don't like to do that, but I know couples with no kids just as busy. I know people with twice as many kids as I do wondering why I think I'm so busy. What's the psychosis of this busy addiction? I want to understand if you really know people with eight with eighteen children. Okay, I was a little exaggeration. I do know some with twelve, which is more than I have. So we'll go with that. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around that. Multiple businesses, nine children. Uh, yeah, and you claim yourself busy. That's probably that's probably true. I need you. It? I need you and your message desperately. <laughs> Greg, well, it's true, and, and he adopts everybody who comes along too. So, if you're so ever in a, if you're ever in his house, there might be four or five other kids there. It happens. It actually, it sounds quite lovely though, in a, in a in a way, because I I can I can just imagine, you know, look, I I just think that we've got to a point where people are trying to outdo themselves in claiming busyness. You know, so I remember talking to. Uh, a woman recently, and she said, "Oh, Greg, I'm so busy. I, mean, I just barely met her. 
It was, a, it was actually in response, sort of like, oh, hi, how are you? You know, just as a, as a meeting. Oh, I'm so busy. Says, I, I'm, I, I'm so busy. I've slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. This, this is in the intro. This is, this is the elevator pitch. And, uh, of course, she didn't know I was, she was talking to an essentialist. And so that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't exactly be so impressive to me because but, – but, but, but which people try to almost – they outdo each other. I'm – the different kinds of busy. Oh, I'm busy, busy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm great. I'm so great but busy. There's, there's, these, we have brands of busyness now. I think we're in a busyness bubble. Mm. I think that people they're, – they're claiming a certain busyness because – it's become a value. Mm-hmm. Busyness is a measurement of importance, of success. What I think she was saying to me on that occasion was, yeah, she didn't say this, but I think she was saying, look, Greg, I hate to break it to you, but I'm just a little more important than you are. You know, you're, you're sleeping normal hours, but I, I'm, I'm too important for that. I'm under too much demand for that. And so you know, in a time of a busyness bubble, it, you've got this overvalued asset. You've got this this thing that, in fact, isn't very valuable at all, but everyone's trying to outdo each other. And eventually every bubble pop, pops and bursts. And, 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 and then you look at yourself and wonder, well, how did we act in that way? How did we get into that irrational exuberance? Hmm. I think that's the environment we're in. That's the cultural norm of our times. And so I'm not so sure I wrote a, a great book when I wrote Essentialism, but I am sure it's a great problem. Hmm. And it's universally hitting people these days so that's that's uh that's what i think well so i'm curious on that so then and and you say something to this in the book but it does bring me to ask a question is the issue mainly a self-image issue either we are and you talk to this on one side of the the badge of honor we give to the person who is so busy they're so important or on the other side that you speak to is also that maybe an insecurity in being able to say no to so much, but both, both self-image issues. Well, I don't know. I've got to think about that a little bit. A, a, a friend of mine once said that there's a big difference between uh, scared, our scared self and our sacred self. And as I heard that, I thought, yes, that, that seems consistent with what I found as I've looked at why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, all this, is, this was professional for me. I was studying Silicon Valley companies and, and why they're successful and particularly why, Silicon, why otherwise successful companies don't break through to the next level. So there's this professional thing going on mm-hmm. in my life. But but actually, why I ended up writing Essentialism versus any other book was because of something that happened personally. And, and that does seem to be when my scared self was, was you know, more guiding my decision-making, at least on that particular day. This is, the context is this. I got an email from my boss at the time, and uh, the email said, Look, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I was, my wife was expecting, otherwise that's an even stranger email to receive. Uh, uh, yes. But, but even so, you, you know, Friday comes along and I, I'm sure they were in jest, at least in part, uh, but Friday we're in the hospital because so I'm still feeling this pressure. And I, I, 
as I say, I think that was, it was because of me, but I was feeling, I've just got to keep everybody happy. I've got to do it all. And so I went to that meeting uh, and afterwards I remember they said to me, oh, the client will respect you for the choice you just made, you know, to, to be here, to try to prioritize this. And, and I just, in hindsight, I think what I learned was, look, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And so I think that's what's, I think that's a, one of the elements at the core here that we, if we get too focused on the scared self and on worrying about what everyone else thinks of us and worrying about trying to keep everybody happy and that that's, that's the, the focus, then we'll actually get out of focus. And, you know, it's about finding the space to, to discover the sacred self, to discover the, the quiet clarity amidst all that external social noise that's a key here somewhere. So, so Greg, I, just a question for you, because maybe it's my scared self or maybe it's another self in me, but I longingly watch the HGTV tiny house shows. Right. <laughs> and I just have this vision of an uncluttered, because you can't, you can't take the stuff with you. I mean, it's like it forces you into making these choices. Mm. If, if you're, if, if some part of you longs for that, is that like a sign that maybe you got too much going on? Maybe you haven't prioritized, maybe, you know, or is that just, just I like tiny houses. <laughs> I, um, I have, uh, I had a very similar experience to what you're describing. Uh, but it wasn't just a passing fad for me. I was actually having a conversation just like this here a couple of years ago. Maybe not as long as that. But anyway, somewhere in the last, I think, I think year. And the person I was talking to lived on the land of their nth generation, you know, fourth. They lived on that land still. And they said that on that land there was this uh, farmhouse. They didn't live in the farmhouse, but there's a farmhouse. And they said, in that farmhouse, they said, they said, first of all, there's no cell coverage out there. There's no Wi-Fi out there. And secondly, whenever he goes out there to this place, he said he felt uh, he could see, sense in his mind's eye, what his ancestors would do there. He said, you know, he imagined that they would be up early in the morning, out working hard in the fields and so on. But that by a certain point, certainly by the time it's dark, somewhere in the afternoon, they're in, they're in together in the home, sitting around the one source of heat, the one source of light, the fire, all together, reading, because there's no distract, digital distraction. And this was their life, and this was their routine. And something, that description of being in land and in this little house together and the stillness of it and the focus of it that was very touching to me indeed and I'm happy to report that that I realized at that point that I felt like I had been up until then half a revolutionary <laughs> I'd written essentialism I was teaching it I had already simplified my life considerably I'd certainly given an enormous amount of thought about the things that matter most and tried to eliminate 
many of the things that mattered less. But I realized I was half, just halfway done. And I still feel a bit like that. I still feel there's so much more to go. But I did make changes. We did move. We actually did go to a place with, in, you know, with some land, with some space where you could, and maybe that's not available to everybody, but I think that there's, there are these deeper design choices we can make in life where life is simpler, is quieter, is steadier, is sounder, is wiser. And I think that what you're describing isn't necessarily, oh, I've got to go and live in a tiny house. It's tapping something inside of you that says, look, this whole busyness thing, this whole everything popular now mantra, you've got to do it all, isn't, isn't giving what it promised to give. That there's, there's a con here that we've been conned mm. and we've sort of got to the, 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 we've got to a certain point of, of success and we say, well, this doesn't feel like it's supposed to. And that's because non-essentialism, to give a name to what we're describing, is, uh, is based in things that aren't true at all. And so, of course, they can't give what they're promising. And so I think that there's something to what you're saying. I think there's a, I think it's tapping something. Am I, am I, am I making this up? Is this, am I exaggerating? No, I, I think you're right on. I think the, uh, it's not my scared self and I'm going to explain it this way. One of the most powerful quotes that I've heard was Michael J. Fox. And you may have heard this quote. They had him on video and his Parkinson's was really, really bad. And he was shaking. You could just see him shaking like a leaf. And they said, what have you learned? And this is what he said. He said, I learned that I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. Mm. And the metaphor, and I think that's what it is. It's mm. not that I have a scared self. It's that I think I have a self that says, wait a second. There's more out there. And the more is, the, is, is, less. More, is less, right? It's the essential that's more. It's not yes. the stuff and the noise. Yes. And, and now that you bring us back to that language of scared versus sacred self, I mean, clearly what you're describing when you desire that is, is closer to that sacred self. That's saying you don't need all of this. You know, I, I think that scared versus sacred self is something to do with ego versus humility. It's saying you, you, don't, you don't need all that stuff at all. It isn't a need. All these extra things, they're not needs. They're, they're, they're like pretended needs, like somebody who's become addicted to a substance. or to, They don't need those things, but their body and brain now believes they do. Well, I think that that's been true of this, of this non-essentialism um, malware that has slowly entered our society and our consciousness. So... For example, if you if you look back with some you know some broad history, uh, if you go back to the 1400s, that's when the word priority came into the English language, huh. and it was singular. Well, what did it mean? Uh, I mean, actually, it means the same now as it did then. So it's not a trick question. This means the very first thing. Uh, it comes from the same word as prior, the prior thing. So it stayed singular. Here's the clue. It stayed singular for the next 500 years, according to Drucker anyway. 
And, and so that means that it was the 1900s when we started pluralizing the term and started speaking of priorities. But th- th- there's just no sensible definition of the word priorities. How can you have very, very many, very first before all other things things? How can, you can't. You, you know, the whole idea originally was, was what's the one most important thing? And, you know, but haven't you been to a meeting where somebody sends with no sense of irony at all? You know, here are my 20 priorities. <laughs> they all have to be done now or yesterday even. So you can see that there's, there's something even in a language that, that hints to what has happened in our culture. Uh, embedded in that language uh, dispersion, there's, there's been a similar dispersion in our lives where we just feel pulled all over the place. I mean, people listening to this will, will surely relate that, that sometimes, at least, they feel busy but not productive. That sometimes they feel stretched too thin at work, at home, the community, at church. They're just pulled in too many different directions. That, that, that sometimes they feel their life is just being hijacked by other people's agenda. Uh, and maybe not for the most important essential activities in their lives. And so if, if they find themselves saying, yes, I actually do feel that, and, and maybe not just occasionally, but even often, then the question is, is there a way out? And I think that there is. And that way out is the way of the essentialist. And that's really what, you know, that, that's the, the antidote. If the, if the problem is the undisciplined pursuit of more, then the, the, the antidote is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Ah, that's, that's a big, that's a big quote. I want to get into some of the specifics then as we, as, as we hear this message and want to take action on it. So I'm going to pull a couple of things out of the book. One of them, and this is right out of it. You write the way of the essentialist rejects the idea that we can fit it all in. Instead, it requires us to grapple with the real trade-offs and make tough decisions living by design, not by Default and in a graph in the book, which I, I some of your graphs are really powerful. You show the essentialist as saying no to everything except the essential. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pair that with a favorite movie of mine called Yes Man. Uh, it's Jim Carrey, where a guy whose wife dies, he really retreats from life completely. Said no to everything except for work and passing the time with with TV. Which I know you're not. That that's not the point here. Uh, you know, the guy who goes to a conference and commits to saying yes to everything, which leads to some great things, but becomes unsustainable as well. But as we look at that, cause you're also, I don't want anyone to hear that you're saying, say no to everything and retreat. You're, that's not the point over here. You've got the saying yes to everything. That's not the answer either. The healthy perspective is in the middle, but shine some more light on that for us, if you would. Well, yes. First of all, let's just look at the counterfeit for essentialism. Uh, the counterfeit is, oh, well, Greg must be saying, say no to everything and anyone without really thinking about it. Uh, and that would be a book called Noism. All right. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't write that book. Uh, so the book is Essentialism and the clues in the title, right? It's what is essential. It's, a, it's saying for most people, the problem isn't that they're saying no to too many things. It's that they're saying yes to too many things and not thoughtfully not thoughtfully. Um, but either side of the equation could be a non-essentialist. You could, you could be a non-essentialist and be very focused if you're just focused on the non-essential. You know, a, a drug addict 
might be focused on one single thing. They think about nothing else all day long. They're a non-essentialist. <laughs> They're just consumed with something that's unimportant. Right. Uh, and, and so that whole extreme is, is completely, uh, you know, is, is as, although I don't address it very much in the book, uh, it's a form of non-essentialism. The more common form of non-essentialism, I think, today is this everything for everyone all the time and just believing in ourselves we have to do it all. It's not even other people. It's often just because we tell ourselves and have bought into the idea that we have to do everything we're thinking about. If I think about it, I have to do it. If it's a good thing, I ought to do it. I mean, this, is all, this can all be just internally, which is a good problem because that means we can do something about it. Essentialism is the continual, perpetual, disciplined pursuit of those few things that matter most. So how do you do it? Uh, three principles, explore what's essential, eliminate what's non-essential, and then try to create a system, a routine, a way of living that enthrones and protects those things. Now that's what you're trying to do as explore, eliminate, execute. The, the really the, the thing to begin with in order is creating space to figure out what's essential. If you, if you skip that, if you sort of say, oh, yeah, okay, I think I get that. I think I, I, pretty, well, I pretty well know what I'm doing. I think a lot of CEOs say that to me, in fact. They'll say, they'll say, look, I think we're pretty clear about what's essential. I think we're pretty clear. And I, and I as a person who wears glasses, I always want to say, well, look, I think the difference between pretty clear and really clear is really different. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about that. It's saying, look, find your pretty clear. Get really clear. Because, because you can't do everything on your list if you're only pretty clear about what's essential. You just can't. So that means that life's circumstances and randomness may well make those trade-offs for you. And, and that, I think, is a costly, that's a costly error of approach. Uh, so it's, it's all about how do you figure out, how do you create space to really get clear? What is essential? So that you can then know what to eliminate, know what to trade off, and you can do that strategically, deliberately, thoughtfully, with discernment, with stillness. You can say, these are the things that I'm not going to do because these are the ones that are essential. Hey folks, we are getting into the meat of this interview. A reminder real quick, you can get Greg's book, Essentialism, wherever you get books, but connect with him and everything he's doing at gregmcewen.com. Again, that's M-C-K-E-O-W-N. I have two wonderful show sponsors with a great service for those of you who are hiring and a really interesting business opportunity for those of you looking for that zip recruiter. So if you're hiring, you've got to know where to post your job to find the best candidates. Hiring can be a lot more easier, more streamlined, less time consuming. Even when you're busy, you can still be smart about the way you hire quality hires, keep your business moving forward. But 
We also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter, get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Ziggler listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Ziggler. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Ziggler. And then Goddard School. Have you ever thought about going into business for yourself, but were overwhelmed by the idea of doing it by yourself? Operating a franchise gives you the best of both worlds, the freedom of owning your own business and the support and resources of an established successful brand. The Goddard School is a premier franchise of private preschools that provide you the opportunity to own a recession-resistant business while making a positive impact on children and their families. There's an ever-increasing demand for high-quality preschools and childcare. Having been a trusted name among parents and families for nearly 30 years, the Goddard School's proven educational approach ensures that children have fun while learning the skills they need for long-term success in school and in life. When you become a Goddard School franchisee, you receive best in-class support from a team of knowledgeable professionals in marketing, advertising, finance, IT, and more. For more information or to apply to become a Goddard School franchisee, visit learnaboutgoddard.com. And that's G-O-D-D-A-R-D, learnaboutgoddard.com. So I'm curious on the, or I want to ask more about, you mentioned the word space multiple times. And you talk in the book about the essentialist feels in control. The non-essentialist feels out of control. So we have a large part of the populace, even here with the Ziegler audience, we have a lot of business owners, a lot of entrepreneurs, freelancers, but we still have a lot of the populace that is either um, involved in a work environment as an employee, or maybe not even even as a business owner, but it's still a primarily nine to five or more Monday through Friday scheduled existence and, or kids who are in school for the most part from eight to three with an extracurricular activity. So again, almost the same timeline where they have, uh, with those folks do, are they, and the talk about space, because you also have, uh, life maintenance that goes on and, and dinner and bedtimes and, and all, all, all those things with those cultural confinements of work and school, those institutions in essence, are they handicapped right from the gun? That's, that's, that's a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, I think that, I think that there's no easy answer to the question of whether, you can be an essentialist inside of institutions that are often have often bought into non-essentialism over many, many years. Yes. That's, that's tough because, because you'll be countercultural. And indeed I do believe that essentialism 
is more countercultural than I realized it was when I wrote it. So, look, this is, this, is, um, this is not easy. And the way that we've grappled with it, um, we've come to conclusions that other people might come to very different conclusions in their lives. So it's not that well, what we've done is what other people should do. But as the, the more that we looked into, the more that we looked into education, the more we, for example, as one illustration of what you yeah. said, the more we found, yes, there's so much non-essential stuff in, in the very good, I might add, schools that our children were in. I, you know, these, these, are, these were very high-performing schools, public schools, but just tremendous devotion given by the other parents, by the schools, everything. But we still found ourselves saying there's a lot of stress here and noisiness and just stuff that was well-intended, but it's just been added onto it. Every new tradition is, oh, here's a good idea. We'll do this thing. And then that becomes every single year you have to do that thing. And so over time, it's like scar tissue, well-intended scar tissue that adds on. So we actually, I mean, for, for us, we have four children and, and, you know, actually three of them, we never really intended to do it. But as we looked into it and started designing our lives more and more thoughtfully, we are now, we do now have them in a, in a home education program that yeah. we've been designing. Yeah. And it is amazing how much they can learn, how far they can go and how quickly it can be done. Not every day, because sometimes they get, you know, really distracted as well. Um, but, uh, but, but it is amazing when you don't, when you can remove some of those, those, uh, those norms, those system, systematic, systematic, um, structures, same for an entrepreneur. If you suddenly walk out of a, of a, what, what could be a very non-essentialist culture inside of a large corporation and you start your own thing, if you're thoughtful and careful, you can design a very essentialist organization um but here's what i will say first of all going this way if, if you got out of the systems you've got to realize how much non-essentialism is in your own head it, how much noise is there how many things you think people should do and have to do and and ought to do and and and, and, and so to my mind, I don't write about this in essentialism, but I actually think it could be a treatment, you know, I don't know, for some future project to really study how to get all of the, the closet of our minds empty and then to look very carefully at every thought, idea that we have in there, all that noise and try and, and select between it which clothes to curate and put back in there, which thoughts should go into the closet of our mind. Uh, so that's a warning for anyone who just thinks, okay, well, we'll get out of the systems, then it'll be easy. Well, no, it's all in there. It goes with us. So the, the, the other side of this question is an important one. Can you do it if you're in the system? And the way I want to answer that is by it appeal to the same logic, which is that if a lot of the non-essentialism is our own minds, that it isn't, it is in the system, but that that isn't the real damage that it's, that we have just believed things have to be a certain way. You can start working on that at any point. You don't have to wait until you're outside of the system to suddenly discover how much noise is in your own mind and how many things you think they should do and have to do. And what You can start looking inside of yourself and saying, look, what, what are the really essential goals for my children? What am I really trying to create? You know, take a very long-term perspective. And you can start doing that in any, any environment. 
you can say to yourself, what is, what is the hundred year vision for my life, for my children's life? Like, so that's to put yourself not till on your deathbed. I mean, many, many people trying to be thoughtful and being thoughtful have suggested, well, what, 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 what would you want people to say about you on your deathbed? You know, that's long-term thinking. It is long-term thinking, much more long-term thinking than email to email, text to text, you know, thought to thought. However, I think it's necessary but insufficient. We have to go beyond that. We have to go, you know, so our grown grandchildren, 25 years after we're gone, and, and, and look to them in our minds and say, well, what, what lasted all that time? What essential things still matter? Which things have survived? Which things didn't matter at all? Which things were just complete? They didn't, couldn't care less. They won't remember it. They won't think about it. What few things last that kind of length of time? That, I think, that thought experiment, especially if we really come back to it often, has the perspective to help us to start to rid of out of our lives things we can right now, things that we have control over or influence over now. And, and that's the place to begin. Don't, don't start by saying, well, okay, well, I'm going to take on the, I'm going to go and see the principal at the school and have it out with them. Oh, well, that doesn't seem like a good idea. I'm going to go to my boss's boss and start saying no to things and telling them how non-essential it was. That doesn't seem like the place. No. Start with the things you have influence over, you have control over. Question why you're doing look at your Look at the routine, the first hour of your day. You have, the, you have control over the first hour of your day. You have influence over which things you do. And ask yourself which things you need to do every day, in the first hour of your day, that will matter 100 years from now. That's a very sobering experience. And it starts to help us to put in uh, tiny things we do every day that will have tremendous impact a hundred years from now. That, that's, that's, these are some of the thought experiments that, and, and even practical things we can do to try and discern here. So let me, let me just jump in. I've got two words that just kind of bounce around my head and they, they're kind of, when I work with, uh, I do a lot of uh, what we call legacy coaching with business leaders and business owners. And it seems it's like the squirrel thing happens, right? We'll be going down a track and then the shiny object will, right? It's just, it's, I, th I think uh, social media and everything is like crack for the brain. You know, we like that hit. We like the new thing. It's exciting. It's new. And so I heard this somewhere and the two words were novelty versus nuance. And so the idea is if let's, we could have two goals. We could say, I want a successful sales career or I want to be a successful sales professional. If you say career, then you're going to be looking for novelty. You're going to be looking for the quick thing, the new job, the other if you say, I want to be the right kind of salesperson, you quickly narrow down into five or 10 qualities and characteristics that every top person in whatever field they're in has. Mm. Right. And so then you set that goal and it's, and it's not to seek out the new thing. 
that's going to give you the the multiplier. It's the nuance of the essential thing. So I like this, and I'm trying to understand what you mean by nuance in another environment. I made your story made sense. I love that. I mean, the example. I love it. What, so, what, do you, what is it, what do you include in the word nuance? What does that mean to you? So nuance is uh, well, we all know that in, to be successful in life, we've we've got to know how to build the right kind of relationship. And so novelty is mechanical. It's 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 a dating app, you know. I mean, it's meeting a whole bunch more people and just hoping you luck on the right one. Mm. Nuance is, well, wait a second. What if I study how they want to be approached? What if I learn 10 questions and five or six ways to phrase each one based on that individual I'm communicating with? And so the nuance is I'm going to get really, really, really good at a specific uh, essential skill. Novelty is almost like a patch or a, or a, shortcut that doesn't end up in the place that's essential to me. Um, you know, one of the things that I teach in our legacy program is that um, I ask people, I say, what's the brand you want your family to be known for? Mm. What, are the, what are the words you want people to speak about you when you're not there? And the mm. words that come up are like, uh, you know, courageous and genuine and caring and love. Right. And so, if you pick your own family words, everybody's a little different. So you pick your words, character, integrity, whatever it is. So those are essential. And so now the nuance is how do I build those words into the DNA and bloodstream of my family? So Mm -hmm. that the vision you painted, the great grandkid that you're looking down from heaven at is doing what you did a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it might be the similar as a crafty versus your craft. Some, something that, that is you have have pride, sort of righteous pride about that you want to just do this right. You know, do the right things and the right reasons at the right time, rather than just everything popular now. And I think I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense, and I. You know, I definitely agree with it. And you know, just riffing on this idea of, of, of words, you know, the, the essentialist version of what you're saying is, yes, do everything you just said. What words do you want people to do? it? Then prioritize the order. Then choose the top one only. Choose one. Because you, know, you, you can actually remember that. <laughs> I mean, when I work with organizations, and, and I'll ask, you know, I'll ask them, okay, what's, what's the one thing you value most of all your values? I mean, they can't even tell me what their values are. They're like, they're, even the way they've just done it, here's a list of values. If you can't remember what they are, you can't be thinking about it on an ongoing basis. And so not that I think that those exercises are pointless. They're very important and necessary but insufficient. Keep going. What's the one word value you want people to say about your family brand, to use your example? Uh, what's the one, you know, the one uh, intent that you have right now in your life? You know, what about that? What if, you, what if you could combine these two ideas and you say, okay, what's the one word I want them to say about me 100 years from now? 
I mean, that's, that's a big exercise, right? That's a big process. And how you discover it, of course, is the same way we've just been describing. Create space to explore what's essential. Eliminate what's not, which means you value them all, prioritize them down, choose the top item, and then figure out a system that supports that single intent uh, you know, above all else. So that means in your day-to-day routines, in your schedules, day, every day you are doing something tiny that supports that 100-year intent. That's, that is a completely different way of living than the non-essentialist approach. That's a completely different way of operating and basing on different assumptions. It's less but better over more but worse. It's smaller but longer. <laughs> you, do, you do little little things but for a long, long time. You know, I'll give you one example in my own life. So, so my, uh, when, my grand, when my grandfather's passed away, I had an interesting observation. Uh, the first one that passed away, I was at his house just after he died, and we were going through all these things and organizing a, a sort of funeral service. And here's what I realized that he left behind. There's, um, there was nothing. Uh, I, I realized I don't know even who all these people are, his friends and so on, because that was all inside of him. So I didn't have the list of, well, here are the most, 100 more, most important people to invite to my, to my funeral, or, or here's the, these are the people that I want to stay in touch with because they met. No, it's all inside of him. You see what I'm saying? That we take all of that connected meaning, all of that network of, of value, of relationships, die with us. I was very struck by that. And then my other grandfather, when he died, um, right before he did, he showed me a journal that he had, which is um, one book uh, covering 50 years of a journal. Wow. He'd written one sentence a day for, maybe it wasn't every day, every few days for 50 years in a single book. The difference is immense, isn't it? So much of the meaning, all the dots that connect a life together are lost unless you put it together. But I think there's probably quite a few people who have got into the idea of journaling at some time and they said to themselves, well, yes, I'm going to do this. They get all psyched up and they start doing it and they write three, four pages the first day and day two they think, oh, I don't have time for that today. I'll get to it tomorrow. So now they've got two days worth of three to four pages and it's too much. So they start big they last a couple of days and then it's over. And that's exactly what sort of the non-essentialist approach would be to execution. Better, you say, all right, the intent is 100 years. I want to leave something. I want to leave a story. I want to leave this so that somebody can read this yeah, 100 years from now. You do a tiny amount. In fact, I recommend to people that they write a journal. And for, for a considerable amount of time, they can only write one sentence a day. They're not allowed to write more. They want to write more. They want to write a page. They want to write, well, I'm getting into the habit. I'll, get, I'll keep going. No, you, you do less than you feel that you can so that it lasts longer than you otherwise would. And that is, of course, the biggest challenge with all, with all progress is how to keep, is how to be doing it still <laughs> years down the road. We know that, don't we? I mean, we know that's true, and yet, most of our efforts still emphasize we'll take huge effort, massive action on the thing you've just decided to do. Go all in. And I think, no, go all out. Go for the longest, the longest survival of the tiniest change. 
So I want to riff on that now because I feel like I'm learning a lot about this even recently. Tiny changes in the things we do often are far more likely to produce tremendous results a long way down the road than huge wow. efforts now that can only last, that are just inherently non- unsustainable. When people tell me now, any kind of fad diet whatsoever, I just think inside, I'm not saying outside, I'm not, I don't want to be that guy, but I just think nothing's changed. Nothing. Even if results are evident, evidently different, even if, in fact, they lost weight, they, nothing's changed because the daily habit has not changed. It's just this big effort that cannot be sustained, and so you'll just talk back to the other. What's more powerful to me, and this, in fact, is something I have done and do now, uh, is, there are lots of failure moments, but is, uh, is a good moment. Is if you just write down everything you eat, that's it. Every day. Do you do it every day, though? Write down everything you eat. Oh, you can't not lose weight over time. You'll get the results you want over the long run. You just write down everything. Because why? Because you're bringing awareness to it. You're creating space to look at, oh, wow, I'm eating that. I, don't, I didn't even enjoy that. Oh, oh wow. I'm, actually, I'm not even that hungry. It, it forces a very tiny change in the things you do often. And this massively affects the results down the road. I mean, the first time I did this, the first time I experimented with it, I literally lost like 10 pounds without ever trying to, without thinking about it. And I was like, well, that's, the, that's good. <laughs> that's a good thing. I needed to do that. Wow. Without I, I, tiny changes in things you do often for the long run, that's impact. That's what I think really matters. Wow. I, I love this. And, and, and Kevin, I'm just going to say one thing, and then I'll turn it back over yeah. to you. I read, okay, I, I played college golf, and I love golf, and Dad and I played a lot of golf. And I read an article about how to get your child excited about playing golf. Mm. A, lot, a, a lot of kids don't naturally just say, I want to go play golf, right? Because it's, right. it's awkward and it's hard. So here <laughs> was what, this is what the guy, this is what this pro said. You take your five, six, seven-year-old out and you get some old golf balls, not too many, 15, maybe 20, and you let them hit them into the lake. Mm. And while they're completely satisfied and happy, before they get tired, you leave. Yep. (laughs) And you do that a couple of times and all they think about is how much fun that was. You know, maybe next time I can get it over the creek or or whatever the situation is. And so what you kind of just said was whatever creek you want to hit over, the big thing, do only that much. So the next day you want it even more. Yes, just so. You've got to do less than you want, than you feel like doing today. (laughs) Wow. Counterintuitive, isn't it? Because most people, oh, you want to, you got to go big. Go strong, go everything you've got. And I think, how long can I give everything I've got to that thing? I mean, this dream, this, this idea that habits take 21 days to create, you know, we all heard that. Maybe it's true, I don't know. But, but, but we better hope so because I can't do that for the next 21 days. <laughs> so what I want is tiny, tiny changes. And I am experimenting with this all the time. I mean, I, I, look, I think this. I think that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are lost and there are people who know they are lost. 
and I just want to be in the second category. I, w- I want to admit that. I want to admit I don't know what I'm doing. I want to admit I don't know where I'm going because then the, the paradox is as soon as you know you're lost, in fact, you're not lost anymore because you know you have to stop, pause, plan, think about your life, look long-term, do these things because you go, well, I, I don't know where I'm going. So, oh, well, I better stop and figure that out. And when you get into that category, I think you start to, to see the need for things like uh, a personal quarterly offsite. Or you say, look, I, I, I've got to actually take some time every 90 days, take a day, figure out, figure out what's important to me, where I am, what's going well in my life and why that matters to me and what are the two or three things I'd like to achieve over the next 90 days. So you have a, a cadence of reflection. That's every 90 days. That's sort of a bigger term thinking. Then you're saying, okay, every, every week you're doing the – you know, let's, let's do an overview you know, of where I am again of that 90 days and look at this. You know, so you're doing a weekly planning session and then a daily planning session. You know, I'll tell you this. Daily planning session is now one of my things, everyday things. And I can't believe, actually, I have to admit, that's been a pretty recent thing for me. It's not like I don't think about what to do each day. I have a variety of ways that I've approached planning, but really taking the time to do it. And marking, just keeping a record of, am I doing it every day, is been unbelievably powerful to me. I cannot believe how much stress is removed when you actually take the time to thoroughly plan by doing the following, by getting all the stuff out of my head. The first thing, I use my journal for this now. My journal is my favorite technology. I just, okay, everything that's on your mind, okay, that, get it out of my head. Okay, write that all down. Second thing, uh, what's already on the calendar? What's already on the schedule? What's already going on today in my world? There's obviously lots of things going on. We're not starting at neutral each day. Get all that out. So I'm looking at that. So I'm, that gets me all honest about, okay, well, there's already a lot on. So you, you, you can't do everything that's in your mind and all the things that you have. Okay. Then I look at the schedule and I say, okay, starting at the end of the day, I start end working backwards, right? Like, it's backwards innovation, backwards design. Because if I start at the end of the day, it protects my sleep and it keeps me honest about what I'm realistically going to do and then start building backwards. This process forces me to get, to get real about what can and can't be achieved. It's always true that the amount that I am left with, the amount of time that is there is so much less than I wish was there. <laughs> There's all, it's always true that I have far more things that I would like to do than I can do in this available time. But what's amazing is as you actually make the trade-offs deliberately, you start to go, yeah, those things on there really are the most important things to do today. And, and strangely, life starts, when I do that, life feels so much calmer, so much more satisfying, more productive. Because I just go, yeah, those the most important things are getting done. And I've made the trade-offs myself rather than just let life make them for me. So that's a, that's a pattern there that, that I feel. This is, this, is, this is not, I used to think, say to people, I'd say, oh, you can, you can do this in, uh, you can do this in very quickly. I don't think so, actually, to be honest. Uh, I think it takes me a long time to really do it. I'll, I'll, it'll take me an hour even. 
but I never regret the time. The investment is really wise. So what I think people can do to begin this habit, consistent with what we were just saying, is, is literally just look at your calendar. <laughs> just look at it. That might be the one thing you do, and you do that for a long time. I'm just going to make sure every day I am actually doing that. I'm not going to my email first. I'm going to my calendar first and actually looking at it rather than just reacting. Oh, pops up. Oh, yeah, I have that meeting because it's, oh, I got 10 minutes and I'm on that thing. I don't know if, I don't know if anyone else does that, but I, there was a time in my life that definitely I was feeling like that. I, I knew about an appointment because I got the 10-minute warning, not because I'd looked at it that morning already. Am I crazy? Am I the only person who was ever doing that? No, you're stepping on my toes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely <laughs> offended uh, right now. No, I, I would be remiss in this if I didn't uh, speak of, I mean, Ziggler has a Ziggler Goals Planner. And folks listening, you can go to Ziggler.com and get a Ziggler Goals Planner. And it is a uh, paper product. Uh, it's got a, you know, a leather cover thing, but it's a paper product and, and that's purposeful. It is to have that time off of your computer, off your devices with a pen and paper and the kinetic uh, psychological benefit that you get from actually doing that and taking that time. And the people who do it absolutely uh, swear by it. But I want to take that, Greg, and go into something that's been brewing here as we've talked that to have this essentialist life to know what are the right and essential decisions that I'm going to make seems impossible before first having a, you're talking about a daily planning session, having a life planning session of discerning what is important, which really brings us full circle to the, the, the Ziegler focal point of all time is goals. Uh, and, and in that, we know that that to, to do that life goals, that's a daunting place for a lot of people as well. Where do you take, take us from that focus, if you would? Well, I, I, you know, of course I, you, you got to have goals. Somebody said that. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I, I, know, um, I know who said that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I completely, I completely buy that. The, 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 the only additional thing I'll say to this, one of my, um, one of my Stanford professors once said to me, um, he said, the goals are the theory that works. And what he meant was, you know, there's all these theories that they're sharing in business school and some of, the, some of them work some of the time and some of them are interesting and useful but incorrect. And other, but goals work. I completely agree. Now, we have to also be careful with them. The ability to set goals is a full leadership capability, really important. The ability to unset goals is just as important, just as crucial. I, I had an experience, a funny experience with this that recently. When I was young, this wasn't recent, when I was 10 years old, this is where it all began, my uh, brother said to me, he was right in the middle of the Star Wars, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hurrah, and uh, he, said, uh, he said, wouldn't it be great to have a Stormtrooper costume? And he didn't mean, I mean, he probably said, you know, like in the movies, a real Stormtrooper costume, not, you know, not something you just go buy at the local store. And ever since then, I just thought that is true. You know, that's, that's what you want. And in fact, you can buy them. And they're, they're ridiculously expensive. And somehow this goal, this intent, stayed with me all these years. And finally, I'm talking like last 
it's only last year. I don't mean I don't mean in the distant past. It's Halloween, and I go to the store, and I try on the stormtrooper costume. Finally, to look at this thing. Should I buy this thing? Should I? I'm looking in the mirror. Me in a stormtrooper costume, and I suddenly I'm just shaking my head. There's not one part of me that wants a stormtrooper costume. This is this is an outdated intent. This thing is completely not important to me today, and it's become a shorthand for my wife and I. Because if it was just the stormtrooper costume, that would be one thing, but. There are other stormtroopers in my life. Other things that once I've set the intent, the goal, you know, many years ago, I can still hold on to that for a long, long time. And occasionally, I've, it's led me to sort of have a, a misjudgment in the now because I'm just trying to still do this thing that I really wanted at some previous time. So the ability to know consciously, what are all of the existing goals that I have set in my own mind? They might not be on a piece of paper. That's the goal, in fact, is to get them on the piece of paper so that you can look at them. What are all the things that I should do, want to do, have to do, that I believe I have to do? Because at one time I set the intent. That's what he really meant when he said that, Professor, it's the theory that works. He was really saying to me, it's a theory that works almost too well in some circumstances. So you have to learn how to master your goals and not let your goals master you. And and so I think that's, you know, what are the, what are the stormtroopers in our lives that we can unset from so that we can then trade off those resources and energy under the things that we now believe are the most important things. Uh, I love the analogy. Absolutely. And and I've got a, a question on this as we get into the nitty gritty of people taking action on this, altering the decision process in their lives. You have a story you tell or, or an analogy that you use in the book of an essentialist approach to the closet and right. uh, which inspired me to clean mine out. I thought about it this morning. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Uh, here's what you say. Instead of asking, is there a chance I will wear this someday in the future? Ask, do I love this? Do I look great in it? Do I wear this often? Which, and I relate to the former uh, statement as well. And then you go on in the book and you talk about taking those decisions and you have a couple examples that you use and putting them to an extreme test. And that paradigm, I feel like is very, uh, it's, it's tangible. I, I, I can take that. So you used it in a closet. Give us a couple examples of taking that extreme test into our day-to-day family lives, professional lives, and putting the question to an extreme test. Again, back to your, your, your closet. Is there a chance I will wear this someday in the future? That's not an extreme test. But do I love this? Do I look great in it? Do I wear it off? That's, those are extreme questions. Well, yes, I, I do use the word extreme in the book. They're not really very extreme, as I hear you repeat them back to me. As I reflect on them now, I think they're just, they're just sensible. They're extremer. Well, not sensible. They're extremer. They're, they're just sensible compared to, yes. could I ever possibly use this again? Yeah, if, that, if that's your only criteria, your closet will always be too full, no matter how large your closet is. Uh, and, and same with the closet of our lives. So 
I think that people probably ought to begin by saying, well, what criteria am I currently using to pursue something? And honestly, I think for a lot of people listening, the criteria that they use will be something like, could this thing be good? Could it do some good for someone somewhere? Could it be a good thing? At all good. And if it's at all good, then they feel not only justified in doing it, they feel they ought to do it. Oh, this is, this is a good thing. You know, that's a good opportunity, so I should do it. It's good. It's good. But the problem is, is that the number of good things will so massively outnumber the time, resource, energy we have. It cannot be the right question. The question is, is this my highest point of contribution? Mm. Yeah. So how, how do we figure this out? Well, I mean, I, I think that one structure that I found that's helpful is, is to come up with an essential intent. In the book, I talk about that being a sort of one single goal for the next two or three years. It doesn't mean you can't have more goals, but you just only have a single essential intent. But now I think, given our conversation today, uh, is consistent with what we've talked about, is what's the essential intent for 100 years? What's our 100-year essential intent? And so how do you formulate that? You say, okay, what's the verb, population, outcome, date? 100 years from today, so we've got the date, verb, population, outcome, what we're saying. What is the unique ability, gift, talent, passion that I bring to the table, what can I do superbly well? What is it that I have to offer? That's the verb. Population. Who is the unique, no, no, the priority customer or personal relationship? What's the priority relationship? And then the outcome. What, what is the What's the, the outcome I would hope for that person? What would I want the contribution to them to be? And that can be done. I mean, I've done that now. And it, it's, it, it, first, it sounds like ridiculous, but eventually you go, no, I've got a single statement that isn't just a, isn't one of these random, random or not random, broad, bland, un inexplicable, indiscernible vision statements, mission statements that sometimes get created. They sound all very nice, but they don't mean anything because they're not actually clear. There's no trade-offs in them. I want to, I mean, you just read almost any vision, mission statement companies put together, and that's what you end up guessing, unfortunately. So I think you just figure out, you've got to go through that process. I think that, and I want to tie this something to you said, said a moment ago about life goals. Yes, just don't try and do this once. That's why I like this cadence of a quarterly offsite. At that quarterly offsite, the structure I'd recommend always includes the very long-term thinking. You don't spend the whole day on that. You don't spend one time in your whole life. I'm going to think about what matters, you know, 100 years from now. No, every 90 days, you, you ask a different element of that same question. You re-examine the big picture connect to it it produces perspective it creates meaning if it's been done well it creates tremendous motivation 
Right. That's nuance. What you just described is the nuance of that question. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I, uh, I do too. I, I do too. I mean, th- this is ultimately, um, you know, I, I, I want to wrap us on something that, that feels important to me. Uh, Greg, there's a saying you probably heard. It's always stuck with me that says great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. And I always see the People magazine in the grocery store aisle uh, that feels very small to me. And I, I really feel like in this, the perspective that I keep getting that I'm embracing is you saying you elevating the status of the essentialist and calling us to a higher place of living and success in our decision-making and our lifestyle that in being discerning with our decisions, our commitments, uh, if we're not, if we're not discerning, we are choosing a lower road that is, that is not going to lead to anything of significance and, and taking the higher road, we should have pride in this. And it's, uh, I guess what I, what I'm grasping for this, it's an, it's a more honorable way to live. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think it's, um, I think it's, you know, it's a path of discernment. Um, and, you know, even from a, I even think from a faith point of view, it's, it's relevant because it's, uh, for, for those who are listening that are, that are people of faith, it, it's, a, you know, a deeper level of thinking about this is a, is a discipled pursuit of less but better. And, and, and in fact, in fact, whatever somebody's religious orientation is, every major religion, think of this, every, the founder of every major religion was an essentialist in an extreme form. Um, uh, a Buddha left all of his worldliness, uh, worldly riches behind, became an aesthetic. Uh, Muhammad uh, advocated, he lived on absolutely nothing, advocated the, the, the simple simple living. John the Baptist, Jesus. This is Moses leaving his life as a prince, go out with Jethro in the wilderness. I mean, this is, I'm not saying essentialism is a religion, it's not. I think that it, it, it that it's curious that all spiritual movements were founded by people who were eschewing the non-essentialist yeah. norms and were deliberately seeking to eliminate the non-essential uh, ego way of living and to elevate that life to to the sacred self. I mean, this is when we talk about scared self and sacred self, it's an inherent elevation. It is. In fact, I, I, um, I was once given what I was told was the only poem that Gandhi ever wrote. And in it found the words reducing oneself to zero. So here is this great essentialist. I mean, in every, he was a constant essentialist experiments in his life. And that's, that summarized it right there, reducing oneself to zero, reducing the scared self to zero so that the sacred self, the true self, can be manifest, can be born, can exist, can, can come amidst the ashes of non-essentialism, a renewed version of who we are. Yes, in the end, essentialism isn't about adding one more thing to your life. It is 
I think it's not too much to say. It's a spiritual practice to become more and more of who we truly are and less and less of who we really aren't. It's, it's, it's to become an essentialist. It's become something. And that process goes on again and again as we, as we start to look at our lives and say, well, I, I, I rid my non-essentialist skin one time. There's still some that remains, lots that remains. Now let's shed it again. And if we're willing to go through that process, I believe our contribution will become so massively greater than it will if we don't. Because whatever level we stop that renewal is the level we'll get consumed at that level with all the things that are at that level of selectivity. And, and so we have to keep becoming more and more selective over time. We have to keep looking inwards and saying, oh, all that stuff that, that, that I'm holding on to because of my ego, I can let go of. So then another level of contribution can, can come forward. It's sort of the, the perpetual phoenix phenomenon. Yes, I think that this is, uh, this is the deeper um, story of essentialism. I'm glad that we at least got to touch upon it. Uh, okay, I, I got to insert there. I just I was thinking that the book, as I read through your book that I hold here, uh, now it feels like essentialism 101, and you just took us to a graduate class in theology. Um, <laughs> what do you think, Tom? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think we would have a, a long night at the fire pit uh, if, if we were ever if would we be were ever there. Beautiful. This is this is my heart song. I think is to really yeah. dig into what's important uh, because. People are just, I call them zombies. They're, they're, they're just out there moving along in any direction that the wind blows without intent. And even the ones who get focused on the right kind of success don't let go of the things that are allowing them to go to the next level. And I think really uh, that's the, to me, that's the ultimate in essentialism is I had an essentialist question asked to me one time and I didn't know it was one. Hmm. And the question was, Hey Tom, um, how are you going to grow your, and, and reach five times as many people as right. a company? Right. And I gave him like 50 answers and he said, <laughs> let me rephrase the question. The phone rings, the phone rings. And they say that they've kidnapped your wife and daughter and you've got one year to reach five times as many people. Mm. What are you going to do? Whoa, all the good things that aren't going to get me to that number don't matter anymore. Because, right. right. The essential thing is my wife and my daughter. Yeah. Every, every, everyone's, everyone's an essentialist in an emergency. That's right. That's a good statement. The key, the, the key is to become an essentialist before you have to, before life is, uh, is requiring of you. And you just saying the fire pit is nice because it reminds me that we, we talked about the definition of priority, but I just recently learned the definition of focus. Focus used to mean it comes from the same root word. You can go look this up as hearth, as hearth. Remember that story we were talking about before where the, 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 the person that's talking to me in an interview like this is saying, he, he went to that little house and his farmhouse and imagined that family there. Yeah, that was focused. That's what the word meant hmm. was being where the warmth was, where the light was together with the people that were essential. That's what it means. 
So it shifted its meaning through the Industrial Revolution into a corporate focus and into all these other things. Focus meant there was only one definition. It meant around the hearth with the people in your life. That's what it means. This is what wow. we're talking about. So to be an essentialist certainly means coming back to that kind of, that kind of focus, not just focusing on something, focusing on the right something. Uh, that is powerful. Greg, this is a, a powerful message that uh, we all need to hear and embrace. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for you taking the time today. Uh, I'm, exa- I'm, I'm really interested in our next uh, part two interview that folks can hear after this on your daily habits and these small, like the small things you talked about that you're doing to help live this out in your life. Uh, thank you immensely. Thanks for sharing your, your, your heart and, um, and this message that is going to impact when I stop this interview and walk out my door, uh, the decisions that I'm, 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 I'm excited. I'm a little daunted and I'm excited because I, uh, I feel a higher calling. So thank you immensely. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Friends, I hope you found this discussion as profound as I did. If you got value, please let us know in an iTunes review. Our next show is episode 493, and we'll take you behind the scenes with Greg McEwen by getting into his personal health habits and the seven spokes of the Ziegler Wheel of Life. There is some really interesting aspects to Greg's inner life that will be of interest to you. Then the following show, 494, we hear Greg's favorite Zig message and value from which I posted a question on Facebook at my agent K Miller account. And boom, we have a long list of in-depth responses that co-host Michelle Prince and I will walk through with you. So I look forward to being with you then as we continue to walk together, inspiring our true performance.